Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. The 2023 MotoGP season had at least three realistic ish title contenders, 10 race winners if you count sprints as well, eight pole sitters, three of whom didn't even win a race, and 15 podium finishes in Grand Prix. So picking and ranking a top 10 riders list is a tough task, and it's just as well we've got a panel of very rational pundits with very consistent and well-justified opinions here on the Race MotoGP podcast. I'm Matt Beer, and as well as my usual gang, Simon Patterson and Valentin Harunchi, we've also brought our boss here today, the race editor-in-chief, Glenn Freeman. It's nice to have an extra voice on rankings and debate podcasts, and we thought Glenn would be an ideal candidate for that. Um, I used to put, make a kind of token appearance on this when I was the occasional stand-in host, and as Glenn was my stand-in this year, this, uh, this is very logical. Also, though, Glenn is responsible for most of my podcast career, because it's down to me going, oh, all right, then, when he had gaps to fill on his own podcasts. And you know, he's, he's always had a reputation all the years we've worked together with not just sticking with a championship top 10 when it comes to a, a rider ranking and, and wanting to shake things up and, and be bold. So I will be holding Glenn to that through this episode as, as his scores come in. Um, Glenn, thanks for joining us. How did you find putting your top 10 together? Surprisingly difficult. You obviously, you outlined there that it's really difficult because lots of people achieved stuff. I actually found that the easier part was finding people to eliminate who I didn't want to put in my top 10. And then I was kind of left with a couple of gaps going, well, I guess I've got to put that person in, even though they underwhelmed me as well. So <laughs> I think that's partly a symptom, obviously, of injuries and incomplete seasons and that for some people. But also you look across a lot of the, the rider lineups and so many of the teams at the moment, you can go, well, that guy did well and that guy's struggling. And I think we've, we've, we've done uh, for the website, we've ranked the lineups as well, haven't we, for next year. And that influences how you feel about that as well. Like, there's plenty of lineups that have two good riders in them, but based on this year, you can't be certain that they're both going to perform, at least consistently. Yeah, I, I, I always try and give myself as little thinking time for a top 10 ranking as possible because I think that stops you getting too bogged down in details and arguing yourself out of an opinion you definitely hold. So I see that as a, as a strength, not a weakness, even though it sounds like I put no effort into it whatsoever. Um, Val, you probably go into statistics more than most people on this podcast. How how challenging or not was putting your top 10 together? And then whatever your answer, I'm going to reveal something about your scores afterwards. I mean, I think I, I did the same approach as Glenn, but I just suspect I'm a gentler soul. Because I had like 13 <laughs> or 14 riders and then had to whittle it down further from there. Uh, I did use a, a bit of statistics, but... Not like an overwhelming amount because, again, you can just really get bogged down in that. And it's not – this isn't baseball. You can't just get one number that, you know, defines your hitting or pitching or whatever. So it's still very much my hunch in the top 10 that I have. 
and uh, this top 10 was changed very last minute. It was a, basically a post-season change of scores when Val realised some of his statistical delving had changed his mind totally about a particular pair of riders. And it had, it had a very big swing at the bottom of the table, which we'll, we'll get to in a moment. Now, Simon, you rank the riders' weekend-by-weekend performances for our Grand Prix rider rankings feature at every race. And I gave you the option of not necessarily sticking to those averages and you know because they can generate anomalies. But you were like, nope. I'm pretty solid on that my top 10 from from that is is correct which is an amazing tribute to your often completely insane weekend by weekend rankings that they've averaged out to something that you genuinely believe in it, it actually it has actually averaged out pretty much the way that I would judge the season I looked at the list and I was like is there anyone that isn't in this that should be no is there anyone that needs to move higher or lower no don't think so so it, it's a rare win for my Larry post-race rankings. Actually, uh, it turns out, you know, kind of pwn themselves together into something effective at the end of a season so that they're not completely useless and designed entirely to start arguments on Twitter. They actually have a point. <laughs> Can I just say, I find that really refreshing because for all the years we've been doing F1 driver rankings race by race, every year there's a massive debate at the end of the year about why the 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 end of season scores are completely useless for actually doing a ranking. So to hear someone go, no, I ranked them through the season, and that is still what I think now. I respect that. Even if your list is, I haven't, I can't recall exactly what the order is. If the list is crazy, I still respect it. It wasn't wild at the end of the year, so I think no. Yeah, no I'm like I said, I'm 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 happy. I'm confident enough in it that I sent it to Matt for this podcast. So take from that what you will. And like Glenn says, obviously. People have seen that part of Simon's list already because we have run his season rankings on the website. But I'm assuming that only Simon Patterson superfans have it in mind. And in any case, it's not giving away our top 10 because our top 10 is combined between the four of us putting the Grand Prix point system onto it and then working out a championship from that. I should also add that I've largely forgotten it. So if anyone else remembers it, they're doing better than me at this (laughs) point. It's been a long season. It's been a long year. That means I don't feel quite so bad about not being a Simon Patterson superfan. (laughs) I don't think such a thing exists outside of my mum, who, who listens to the podcast. I should add. <laughs> Hello, Simon's mum, and thank you for listening. Right, so we're going to get straight in to the bottom end of the top ten, and I, I've been on a few top ten rankings podcasts over the years, and it's very easy to end up debating the bottom few for so long you realise an hour has passed and you're not even number six yet. So I'm going to try and keep this bit tight, and it helps that there was a three-way tie for eighth place. And this three-way tie only developed 40 minutes before the podcast was recorded when Val had a rethink about something and uh, the, the resultant score twiddling created this tie. So we're settling this on count back. So the one with the highest individual score goes eighth, the one with the lowest individual score from one of us goes to the bottom of the top 10. And that person is the late season hero, Fabio Di Giannantonio, who is 10th in our ranking on 18 points. Now... Val and Glenn, you didn't think Digi's efforts were worthy of a top 10 place. Simon and me did. We both put him seventh. Now, I'll I'll briefly give my take on this first, and that's that, okay, you could look at the whole of his season and go, where was he for the first, I don't know, two thirds to three quarters of it? But when he got good, he got so good. And I've got a lot of time for that improvement trajectory as well. And the fact it came when he lost his ride, uh, kind of, and many people would have lost their heads at that point, but he channeled it into something really impressively positive and looked better than he has at any point in his career so far. So that's weighed me. Simon, what was, what was your reasoning for being Digi a fan club? 
I, I actually think that he didn't change his trajectory because he lost his ride, and that's the most impressive thing. He he was building all season. He was getting gradually closer to the other Ducatis, having started the year being very much, you know, the eighth of eight bikes. And like you say, it would have been absolutely easy to lose his head whenever he lost his ride, but he just kept chipping away at that same trajectory, that same sort of path towards, you know, last to first. Um, that for me was more impressive than than the fact that, you know, I don't think cost losing his job was the turning point. I think it was just something that he parked and then kept going on the same path. Um, yeah, I was, I was really impressed by that all season, all sort of final third of the season. It's worth noting that uh, whenever we did our stats crunching at the end of the year, over the final one third of the season, he was the third highest point scorer behind Bagnaya and Martin. So that, that consistency as well, um, really, really impressive. Out of nowhere. Not out of nowhere, but out of a, a long, hard process to get there. Val, you've been very positive about Digia for a lot of the season, and you were looking for the positives about him even when he was struggling. You, you've argued why it's why it would have been okay for him to disappear off the grid but it's it's really good that he is and i was a little bit surprised that he didn't merit a place in your top 10 no but it's just it's like it's a 20 round championship i can i can take a a mini championship of three rounds i can take philip island qatar and valencia and say that he was the outright best rider across those three rounds if you take him if that's the championship he ranks number one for me but it's not there was you know there was the first half of the season where he looked done he was marginally quicker than he was in the first year, and there are the extenuating circumstances of you know his circumstances of his first year and not being paired up with Frankie Garcetti. Although Fabio Di Antonio's crew chief from the first half of the year, or from from his first year, moved to Alex Marquez and has done quite quite well this season. But that's you know that's neither here nor there. There was progress, but it wasn't like enough for much of anything, and there was there was no clamor whatsoever for him to keep his keep his ride. He wasn't going to lose it to Mark Marquez. He was going to lose it to Tony Arbolino or Jake Dixon. And that's still that's still a big portion of the season. So if we if I'm a team boss for 2024, then of course I put a lot of stock into the fact that Fabio Di Antonio improved gradually over the season so much that towards the end he was just one of the best performers and one of the most exciting riders. But as somebody who's ranking the season as a whole and in a way, trying to be mindful, as difficult as it is, that the points at Portimao are the same points as the points in Valencia. You know, it's 37-37. It's 37 weighted the same there and here. I can't, I couldn't quite find a spot in, in the top 10 for him. Just couldn't quite do it. Which is not to say he's had a bad season, which is not to say he doesn't deserve, didn't deserve his reprieve. He obviously did, which is not to say that I wasn't out of my mind delighted by Qatar and Valencia and Phillip Island. But as a whole, I couldn't quite justify it. Yeah, I think uh, whenever I do these, and as you said, Matt, I've been doing them in some form in various jobs for a long time now. I'm always petrified of recency bias. So I went into this going, I've got to not fall into the trap of ranking him too highly because the races I we remember the most were really good. I will admit that when I went back and looked at the kind of round-by-round round point score, kind of supporting what Simon said. The the increase in his points per weekend had started to come before the kind of explosion of performance. So he had been better for slightly longer than I initially remembered, but I'm the same as Val. I just felt it's got to be, 
it's got to be across across a whole season. Don't don't get kind of spooked into into putting him really high because he was great at the end. Actually, what what he did for me was he convinced me that I shouldn't put Alex Marquez in. Um, because when you saw how close he got to Marquez just with a, a late flourish of the season, the things I liked about Alex's season kind of went away then because I thought, well, actually, you know, okay, I remember your peaks and I quite liked some of the times where I went, oh, look at the 73 bike being so far up the field, often early in races. Um, but when I saw when I saw that the points gap between them wasn't actually that big, I, that, that what, what Digi achieved for me was eliminating Marquez from my thinking. Moving on to the next person, our three-way tie, Maverick Vinales ends up ninth. Now, Simon and me were both meh about uh, Vinales, which is a noise for not putting a rider in a top 10. Glenn was the most enthusiastic, so we'll start with Glenn. Glenn, you put, oh, you put uh, Maverick <laughs> Vinales sixth in your ranking, which is a bold departure from his seventh place in the in the actual rider standings. Val, you were, pre- you were pretty keen as well. He was, where was he in your list? He was eighth. But Glenn, what what gave you so much faith in what Vinales achieved this season when me and Simon were underwhelmed? Well, uh, I quite quickly had my one to five and my eight to ten and places six and seven were vacant. So then I went to the standings and thought, ah, I don't have any Aprilia riders in there. Um, And then I did quite a deep dive on their seasons because obviously Alicia Spargaro, um, I've obviously given away that he's seventh in my ranking, kind of had the higher peaks but he also had the lower troughs, I felt. And I, I did feel that Vinales was the the more consistent of the two. So I'm me having the highest ranking, I'm not here as some sort of massive Maverick fan who thinks he had a great season. <laughs> but I just had Val's pointing at himself. Um, yeah, himself. Yeah. But yeah, I, I ended up with a gap. They, they, they both felt like they were kind of omissions from my list. And then I just felt that there was very little between them in their obviously final points t- tallies. And I just, I f- Vinales was the better qualifier. I, I did run the numbers on that to make sure. And I, I just felt he had quite a well-rounded season. I'm certainly not here. Yeah, I'm not waving a big flag with a number 12 on it. That That is by some distance the most, um, maybe lukewarm is too unkind, uh, advocation for someone to get sixth place it always reminds me of the process which i end up presenting this podcast to be honest like i had a gap you were there (laughs) vinales filled that gap val i get a feeling even though you put vinales two places lower down you might be more enthusiastic about his season he probably is yeah (laughs) no partly i mean i i do think actually i think alicia spargo was considerably better despite the tiny points gap i think that's a bit injury affected and stuff like that and okay some of those injuries were very much you know self-inflicted but still on on the overall performance i think what aleish was able to deliver over maverick on sundays made the difference for me even if maverick qualified quite well sometimes and also maverick just isn't still isn't clutch at all just still doesn't deliver on his early weekend pace at all still isn't can't be relied on to put that pace down on the track in the sessions that really, really, really matter. And that's not even, yes, not even the Aprilia in weekend usual trajectory of they're good in low grip and there's rubber on the track and they get worse. It's also just from practice to qualifying when it it comes the time to really put it all there, just doesn't, often doesn't seem to come together. Whereas for Aleish, I think it does. That said, 
Y'all included Fabio Di Giantonio in. Fabio Di Giantonio is 300 points behind the lead Ducati. <laughs> Maverick Vinales is two points behind the lead Aprilia. That's that's my case in a nutshell. That's its entirety. I don't really, I don't think there's anything else that needs to be said. That's as simple. That's as simple as that. So the, the I think the points, the points were a shock to me to be honest because I I did my ranking without looking at the championship and had forgotten where he was. Uh, Simon, I'll, I'll let you chime in on this as well. But my my anti Vinales stance is purely a case of just actually achieve something. Don't just go quick and then not be there. Just actually achieve a result. And then that's slightly undermined when you look at the championship and go, "Oh, he was sixth in the championship. He must have he must have achieved quite a few consistent results along the way there to actually actually do that." But still, I'm standing stand sticking to my guns on the fact that there were, he should have done better than he did. I mean. We, we've talked for so long about who's going to become the third rider or the first rider to win on three manufacturers in modern MotoGP. And in a season where Alicia Spagaro won twice, Maverick Vinales has absolutely no excuse whatsoever for not breaking that record. He should have won a race this year. Um, and, and it's all because of the same Maverick sort of fluffing it up and bad start per qualifying gets tangled up in turn one it's like the same story over and over again i mean overtake someone exactly <laughs> yes. exactly it goes back to what we said in uh, in last week's podcast or a few weeks ago's podcast where it's a celebration in our group chat whenever he passes someone it's like just just do it and and yeah i think my my the fact that he's out of my top 10 is frustration out of that um I mean, he also should have uh, beaten Aleish in the championship this year, and he didn't do that again. Um, Espigaro protects his record of having only ever been beaten by a teammate once in his 19-year MotoGP career. Um, I, I expected more from Vinales this year, and he didn't deliver on it. If Matt would have allowed it, I probably would have left the places that I've filled with the Aprilia riders blank. <laughs> and that's not just a reflection on them. It's kind of... A reflection on how I feel about that team as well. Like last season felt like the beginning of something. It's like here we go. Yes. That that's that's potentially you could argue, you know, the second best bike on the grid. Maybe like they they've got it together. They they've got it everything right. And then it felt like the whole operation, and I mean the riders and the team, everything just felt like it didn't take the next step that you need to. At the moment, there's this huge opportunity in MotoGP where the Japanese manufacturers are totally lost. You've got to capitalize. This is the time if you're someone like Aprilia, who traditionally was obviously the minnow. This, this is their massive opportunity. And I don't think riders or team are taking it. So there's, there's a general kind of underwhelmment that I have towards the whole operation at the moment. And that's partly because I have a fondness for where they've got to up to this point and I want them to keep going. But it, it just felt like it stalled this year. I think with that, that possibly last year was too good too soon and a bit flattered by other teams not making the most of what they had at their disposal. It is not that long ago. I can't remember if it was before racing began in 2020 or 2021, but either way, we ran a column from you, Simon, which was titled something like, MotoGP's worst team is about to surprise you because we had the first hints that Aprilia was getting it together. That is not that long ago, and we were correct to call them MotoGP's worst team at that point. To go from there to fighting for titles is huge, absolutely huge. But it wasn't It wasn't really... Last season wasn't really representative. 2023 and 2022, perhaps in a way, happens the wrong way around. And 
I suspect, I know there's operational issues in, in there and there's been unreliability still, but I still, I've banged on about it in a few podcasts. I want the Prelude to do a big superstar signing because I don't think it's got the riders that are going to give it the things its bike might now be capable of. I'm going to give myself last word on that to keep things moving along, get onto the person who has taken eighth place in this three-way tie, who only grabbed it minutes before the podcast began when Val messaged me going, I've had a look at the stats. This guy, who we might mention in passing later, comes out of my top 10 because Luca Marini must be ninth, which meant the fact that Simon had already put Luca Marini fifth actually became worthwhile and really shot up to eighth place. Simon... This is this is one of the uh, great anomalies of the ranking. Marini is very high up your list. Glenn and I didn't even put him in the top 10. So, Simon, you can go first with um, some Marini worship. Basically, make uh, you, you you might even sound like Repsol Honda in, in, in this <laughs> next few minutes. Um, I, I think that it's, it's expectation versus reality. Um, no one expected him to have a season... That was anywhere close to the, you know, the front running Ducatis. If you if you'd looked at the at the start of the year and been realistic, you would have said that he was in the Digi Antonio category of of kind of being at the back of the Ducati pack. And I think actually he delivered a fantastic season. He was super consistent. Um, he was, you know, knocking on the door of 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 wins. He was scoring regular pole positions and podiums. Um, yeah, I was really impressed with Luca Marini's whole season. Um, it was a very Luca Marini season and it didn't feel like there was a lot of flash about it. Um, and that's maybe because it, it partly seemed like every time he had a good result, uh, his teammate was just in front of him, which took a little bit of the shine off it. But all in all, for me, yeah, I, I think he had a, a real under the radar good season. Um, you know, I it was the sort of... It was the sort of season that you expect of someone like Jan Zarco, but instead, um, you know, it went to someone that that never really gets the credit for doing a really good job. I think he does end up in the same place in our ranking as he was in the Riders Championship as a result of this this late flip. Um, before we get to the anti Marini camp, Val, you you felt ninth was fair for his season. Yeah, yeah, I did, and I. I... You know, as you said, I originally left him out of the top 10 and I just, I revisited that early morning. I had a look and I, I was just like, I can't, I can't justify it. It was, it was a, it was a gut feeling that I looked at again and I, it's, and I decided that gut feeling was not correct for me because it was, it, it was a, a very solid, a, a fairly consistent season with some pretty obvious flaws, I would say, but some pretty strong assets. Like he's just a really good qualifier, which which does impress me. I think he's got a bit of a problem of converting that on Sundays in particular, but he's a really good qualifier. He had a, a bit of an injury issue that I think robbed him of quite a few points and maybe even a, a much more impressive position in the standings. He was roundly outshone by Marco Bezzecchi, but uh, yeah, that'll happen. That'll happen. Um, I think... The reason I left him out of the top 10 originally was I thought about his weekends and I thought about the entirety of the Ducati camp. And I was I was very keen not to just make the top 10 a Ducati fest because we have to account for the quality of the bike. And I thought about the camp and I was like, there was a weekend where basically all of them looked like the guy in the whole field. And that includes Grishini Pair, Alex Marquez and Fabio Gian Antonio. And that obviously includes the likes of Bezzecchi. And I couldn't think of that weekend for Marini. He stuck it on pole, but I couldn't think of a weekend where I went into a Sunday 
expecting him to feature for the win. Couldn't think of it. And that that led to me initially excluding him out of the top 10. And now I just, I looked at the numbers and the season as a whole holistically. And I realized that that just was, for me, that was prioritizing the peaks too much. So that's why he's ninth. Good season. Good job. For me, um, Val kind of mentioned it there. The first person you're judged against is your teammate. And Bezeki had a great season. When we get to where I put Bezeki, I might have done him dirty slightly um, because he had a fantastic season. And he just outshone Marini. So my for a lot of the, the second riders in teams, whether or not they were in consideration for me or how high up the list they should be was how good a job did you do compared to your teammate? And yeah, if... If Bezeki hadn't done a phenomenal job on a VR46 bike, then Marini's season would be fine. And they, you know, if they'd both been kind of in the same region or 20 points apart or something, you'd probably go, yeah, they can both go in. And for me, they'd have probably replaced the Aprilias. Um, but the gap was so big. So yeah, Marini, for me, is, is suffering at the hands of how good Bezeki was. Val hit the nail on the head for me as well in that, in that remark that you didn't go into any Sundays expecting Marini to feature for the win. And yet he qualified on the front row eight times. That's nearly half the season. His qualifying was that good. And yet you're absolutely right. There wasn't a single race where I was like, yeah, he'll definitely be fighting for victory on the, on the final lap. He, uh, how many podiums did he get? Was it two in Grand Prix? It wasn't a lot relative to his front row start, certainly. And that's fine if you're on an average bike that you're wrestling amazing one lap speed out of and you expect to go backwards because you've overperformed on Saturday and it's impossible to sustain that on the race distance. He was on a Ducati, albeit a year old. On, he was on a Ducati. His teammate was fighting for the title with it. So I, there's a lot I like about Marini and I'm fascinated to see how he goes at Repsol Honda and I hope it's not a career-destroying misery for him. Gulp. <laughs> Indeed, because, you know, that's not happened recently for anyone at Repsol. Um, but it, this, this wasn't a top 10 season by him for me. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Right, moving away from our three-way tie and into our illustrious top seven, we've gone Digia, Vinales, Marini, and in seventh place is Alicia Spargaro. So he didn't even get a top 10 vote from Simon, but the rest of us were relatively close on this. Val was the biggest fan, putting him fifth. Glenn went for a radical seventh as opposed to his sixth in the Riders' Championship, and I put him eighth. I got it right. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So I'll let Val come in first with uh, your reasoning for putting him as high as fifth, or what's also known as the Marini spot for Simon. <laughs> I mean, he's just he was really, really good. And I think, I think again, as I mentioned before, Vinales, I think, is flattered by the gap being only two points because I think it's only two points through various alleged calamities. Uh unforced and enforced and whatever i think he's still he's a surprisingly reliable performer not in the sense that he'll bring the the results home necessarily but in the sense that even if he starts the weekend sketchy he'll get to a good lap time like he'll just he'll just be there he might crash the bike but he will 
extract a surprisingly strong lap time out of it, even if, say, on Friday in first or second practice, it looks like Maverick Vinales has a, an edge of four tenths or three tenths, suddenly come the really important sessions. Aleish right there. He's either out qualifying Maverick or sat right behind him on the opening lap. I think he, he was really underserved by the fact that the Aprilia just couldn't start for so much of the season. Like you think back to those Hareth races where he was on pole, wasn't he? And he was just getting swallowed up. There were four starts because of the two red flags. And each and every time he was like fourth or fifth exiting turn one. It was, it was absolutely brutal. I think, I wonder, I still always wonder how much of this is the fact that the bike has been developed around Aleish, but there's only so so much that you can use this to to beat him with for me i think we've seen now a succession of teammates again and again where you look you look at the teammate and you go surely this is the guy who has alicia's number surely you compare their career records surely scott redding has alicia's number surely andrea Yanoni has alicia's number surely maverick vinales has alicia's number maverick vinales i think we were all certain has alicia's number maybe that will be the case next year was not the case this year still. Aleish hanging on. He still is the king of the mountain at Aprilia. He can be frustrating, but I think he's he's just, he's fast. He's real fast. I called him elite at some point of the season. And in a way, despite all the frustrations and the missed opportunities, I stand by that termly in, in, in terms of the delivery of performance. Whereas Simon, he didn't merit a top 10 place for you. I was disappointed. I expected more. Um, and maybe that's because of the expectations set by the 2022 season when he, he genuinely looked like a title contender for the first part of the year. But, I mean, for me, the, the big the big downside, the big negative for me this year, whenever you look at his results, was the crashes. Um, there was just too many of them. And I think that, you know, for, for a guy who kind of almost consistencyed his way to a title or to a title fight the year before to, to suddenly start throwing it down the road and to not only throw it down the road, but also to, to kind of lose his head a little bit when things weren't going right. It didn't exactly sort of show me someone who I look at and think, yeah, you're, you're going to bounce back from this and win a title in the future, you know, going to improve on this season. Um, I, I think maybe two wins in a year, was the peak based on what we saw this year. I don't see it going much further. Um, and, and yeah, I kind of, I guess 2022 made me expect more from him. I think it's funny that, um, although I've only got him, was it two places lower than Val? I feel more aligned with Simon who didn't include him. Um, <laughs> I was disappointed. I, Aspargo has done a great job, as you said, building that team up and building it around him. I've always had a nagging doubt throughout Aprilia's rise about exactly how good that bike is if it had an elite rider on it, because I think Aspargaro is just a tier below. At his best, he's a tier below that. And as Simon said, he didn't show us his best enough this season. So, and this was more of a 2022 opinion, really, where I just, when he was there, when he was on the fringes of a title fight, I just thought, if you put someone mega on that bike, it probably can win a championship. Um, and then the last thing that um, I do hold against him is he thumped someone on a bike on track 
And I know I was more annoyed about it than I think you guys were, but I thought that was bang out of order and he should have had a ban for that. So if that has to be my tie break and for why Vinales is ahead of him, yeah, he gets marked down for that. You can't you can't go around whacking people on track. Go and have a go at him in the garage if you want to. But that, yeah, Simon said, did he lose his head at times this year? There's proof that he did. Yeah, I'm with you on that one, definitely. When we, in that particular podcast episode, I think my solution was he should just go and like slash their tyres in the garage or something, basically do whatever you want to do. Don't do it on track, even on a slowing down lap. Just Yeah, no, totally uncool. If you have to have a fight, don't do it at high speed on, on a racing motorbike. I, um, yeah, interesting. I found him very, very hard to judge this year. I love the fact he exists. I love what he's achieved in his career. <laughs> strange thing to say. <laughs> that is that is a yeah. that's quite the phrase. Yeah, I'm glad he. I'm glad MotoGP has him. Maybe that's a slightly more sane phrase. You know, all those like those races where he seemed two seconds faster than anybody else on a CRT bike ten years ago. All those teammates, that amazing list of teammates in the way who he's absolutely. It doesn't influence his 2023 20, rider ranking position though, does it? No, it just it. But it might give me a teeny bit of residual fondness for him. <laughs> that that when it came to do I bother putting him in the top ten or not? Him versus Vinales, who I just look at as a you've never quite lived up to what I wanted from you. Whereas Aspargo has always been ahead of what I expected and keeps surprising me. Maybe that just tips the balance. And really, he gets in my top 10 based purely on his on his high points. I kind of ignored most of the season and went the style of that Silverstone win, how he pulled that off and the circumstances around it, getting the home win at Barcelona and particularly after blowing it last year. There's just a little bit of... Um, fun and romance about the good things and in the end i was like oh yeah someone's got to be eighth let's make it the guy made me smile a couple of times just i had it like this is always the bold stance of val just deciding to argue specifically with the specific arguments put forward by fellow contributors oh we're gonna get into semantics about something no it's change but it's more (laughs) like philosophical everyone is a bit everyone is a bit disappointed by aprilia as a whole right which isn't just riders, it's the package, it's the execution. And yet the riders who finished on the disappointing Aprilia 6th and 7th get left out of top 10s, even though the general feeling is that Aprilia was not to its last year level this year. And I know that's a general feeling that maybe not everybody here held, but I certainly heard it professed a few minutes ago. So that's the part (laughs) I think... Somehow the two parts of that equation. I wonder who you're talking about. Somehow the two parts of that equation, uh, the riders being a bit, you know, under underwhelming sometimes and not very reliable, and the team being, you know, continuing to have its teething problems and the bike maybe being a bit really bad on some weekends, really good on others, like older style Ducati. I think somehow instead of offsetting each other, they drag each other down. In the, in the consciousness of this podcast. That's at least, that's my theory. <laughs> I, I don't actually think the Aprilia was underwhelming this year. I just think all the writers were at various points idiots. Okay, well <laughs> just, just, just to clarify my view okay. on this, you know? I mean, Miguel Oliveira spent the first half of the season putting himself in positions where he got T-boned in the first lap, and then the second half of the season T-boning others in the first lap. Um, Espagaro had various breakdowns and I don't mean technically, um, and crashed a lot. Maverick was Maverick, and Raul Fernandez took until the postseason test to find his actual Aprilia form. So I think, you know, uh, yeah, I don't actually think the bike was that terrible. No. And I think that Fernandez sticking the bike fastest at the pre-season, at the postseason test kind of underlines that the problem was on all four riders all season. 
Yeah, spoiler alert, Miguel Oliveira and Ralph Fernandez do not feature later in this top 10. Um, on to the next person who does. We're into the top six. Sixth is Johan Zarco. Uh, Val gets to go first with Zarco because you put him in your top six. He was sixth for you as well. The rest of us were kind of aligned. He was ninth for me and Simon and eighth for Val. But uh, Val, over to you. You make the case for Zarco. Oh, man, I'm just really trying to figure out how y'all Why? filled out <laughs> how y'all filled out the rest of the top 10 because i i actually i was quite down on zarko this season in a way but then when it came to forming the top 10 i just i couldn't really figure out a way to to put him lower i think so you're having my aprilia moment yeah 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 very much so i think his his qualifying was really bad really poor and i'm i'm really surprised because he used to be like a real qualifying superstar and just it didn't click at all this season so every time he was left to dig himself out of absolutely huge holes huge trenches every saturday and sunday and it meant that like basically his whole season of sprints was effectively a write-off i don't think he finished on the podium in the sprint once all season and he's on a ducati so how how does that happen but every time there's the the enea bastianini of previous year to a slightly lesser extent, but always you watch a later part of the of the race, and if he's still in it, then he's probably the fastest rider on track or up there or there or thereabouts. And it's what won him Phillip Island. It's what what it, what it could have won him a couple of other races. It's what got him to fifth place in the standings. Um, sometimes I overvalue qualifying form over race form, and I I try I will try not to do that here, especially under this current format. I think it's. It is quite impressive that he's managed to score as many points as he did, given how how poorly he was qualifying. And also he was routinely starting real bad. So He's on a good bike, though. He is on a good bike, but he was like almost giving himself a handicap each time and making himself really, really use that good bike. If he was just more like the younger Johan Zarco, who was qualifying well and led races in the early going, he'd be in the title mix. I, I, I Okay, that's... It's not, again, I'm not super excited. I started this by saying that I was quite underwhelmed and I was quite underwhelmed, but it, it is ultimately a decent season's work. That's why he's high up. Again, there's a huge chasm between the top four and the rest of the rank for me. So I can I can be quite mean to basically everybody else outside of the top four. And yeah, yeah. This is simple for me. He, he finished over 200 points behind his teammate. He's as I said, he's got the best bike. So if he comes through the pack on a Sunday, you're on the best bike. You shouldn't be having to come through the pack in the first place. I have all this is my um Matt, you mentioned your soft spot earlier for Lacia Spargo. My soft spot is for Zarco. I've I admired him in the second tier. I love that he came in and you know, was up the front, crash we crash out the lead on his debut in Qatar. Yeah. Um so I've always uh, always had a soft spot for him. I've, I've been desperate for him to get that win. I'm so happy he won a race before he goes and rides a dog next year. Um, <laughs> but the numbers don't paint quite an underwhelming fifth place in the championship. You know, your, your teammate nearly won it and he's 200 points ahead of you. So that's why I felt Zarco had to be in my top 10. Um, he's got He's got eighth... Uh, which I think is okay. 
but I, I couldn't I couldn't consider putting him any higher. Again, that's kind of why this that gap existed for me to slot the Aprilia riders in because I felt anything <laughs> above eighth would just be would be too generous for Zarco, even though I like him. Zarco's championship standing is basically Zarco's result at the end of every race this season. Um, when you look at it and go, oh. Zarco was fourth. How did that happen? <laughs> and then you look at the championship standings and I'm still looking at it and thinking, how was Zarco fifth? And he, he just like ghosts his way into a good result every weekend. But it's because he gives himself so much work to do at the start of the races. And it's it's also why, you know, sprint races have not been particularly friendly to him because of that, that same sort of mentality to come through late in the year. Um, if we didn't have sprint races this year, I, you know, you would have had a much better season, I think, at least in terms of, of looking at the results. Um, I don't think it would have shifted them substantially in the championship standings, although I have that somewhere in a spreadsheet. But it, it yeah, it would have just been, I don't know, maybe, maybe we would have been more accepting of his season had that happened. But yeah, it was just kind of... Another Zarco, mm, yeah, that's quite good, but it's not really exciting, is it, season? Yeah, that's where he lands for me a little bit as well. There were enough races where I was like, hang on, where's Zarco? Like, I literally don't know where he is. He's called, He's gone out in Q1 again. He's somewhere. Martin's leading. Yeah, that should be better. And then you look at the championship and still he's somehow fifth. Like, it feels like around May, June every year, somehow he's about second in the championship and everyone else is making a mess of things. But it doesn't. It's it's sort of very lowercase impressive, I would say. I would just add a point that I hope doesn't set Simon off uh, on something that's a complete no, tangent. <laughs> no, you, you, you won't say what you know what I'm about to say. Oh, okay. Zarko would come, for, you'd have that moment early in a race where you go, where is Zarko? Oh, he's 13th. What's he doing down there? And then by the end, you have Simon's moment of realisation. We Oh, he's fifth. How did that happen? Part of the reason we say, how did that happen? Was because... Too often, the TV direction only shows you the first four oh, bikes. Okay. So Zarko's 100%. coming through the field, probably doing quite a good job, putting some nice passes on people. We don't see it. We just get the result at the end and go, oh, okay, so there was a race going on behind the leaders. We just never saw it. That That is a fundamental flaw of our TV direction. But the- I will say it's it's something that Dornis seemed to be a little bit aware of, at least. Um and something that yeah, the racing's still on. good. You just got to go and find it sometimes. I mean, whenever whenever you hear riders outside the top 10 referring to their races as being in the jungle, you want to see more of that, right? You want to see yep. the chaos. Just going back to Zarka for a second, I think what underlines how how much the sprints didn't work for him. He's 11th in the sprint standings. He's behind Mark Marquez. He's behind <laughs> I think a he, lot of he people. The biggest drop, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. He, Six yeah. places. Yeah. yeah. Just didn't didn't work for him and it's all because of the bad qualifying and the fact he couldn't start well which you know is a very good reason to drop him well down the top 10 i i appreciate that yeah those are important those yeah. are important yeah. skills yeah. i have. just i couldn't i couldn't again it's a little bit by default but i just i couldn't quite justify it and, and i have now found my spreadsheet and he would have moved up one place from fifth to fourth if we didn't have sprint races because he tied on points with brad bender for fourth but he won a race and bender didn't Oh, wow. Okay, I wouldn't have expected that. I have to say, I think Brad Binder, as we will get onto, felt like he had an awful lot more highlights this season than, than Zarko did on, on Sundays as well. Our next person, we're into the top five. So our countdown so far, Fabio Di Antonio is 10th, Maverick Vignales 9th, Luca Marini 8th, Alicia Spargro 7th, Johan Zarko 6th. Now we come to the person who's got the biggest leap up from their actual championship position to where they are in our rankings. And that's Fabio Quartararo, who we've put 5th. He was 10th in the actual championship. A big part of his fifth place is Glenn, 
putting him third. Yeah, so, I know. So, Glenn, be. make the case. I have not enjoyed the decline of the Japanese manufacturers. I'm incredibly... I'm not sympathetic towards them, but I'm frustrated at the way they just haven't bought into what is required to to be produce a quick modern-day MotoGP bike. <clears throat> but I've also, over the last year and a bit, because let's face it, the Yamaha was on its way down long before Kataro formally lost the 22 title. I've often compared him and Mark Marquez and how they've handled it and how they've behaved. Quattro does plenty of moaning off the bike, don't get me wrong, but I feel like once the races are happening, he is just trying to drag the best out of it. He's not trying to make a scene in the way that I've sometimes accused Marquez of. Marquez is more interested in crashing it to make a point than riding it around to eighth place and just picking up the points you can get. There, and there were just always moments before the machinery deficit would kick in. I always felt there'd be a point early in the race where you go, Oh, look at Quattararo. He's he's got he's found his way up to sixth. And then the 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 move back down the field would happen because of the bike, not the rider. Or in races of attrition, he would suddenly finish higher than he should have. So he it was one of those where I came into this process and I'd already decided, I'd made a mental note throughout the season that he kept finding ways to just gently impress me. Uh, and I felt that I wanted to give him a high placing to to reflect that. It is unfair, I think, on the two riders that um, I put behind him in my personal top five because they both had good seasons as well. But sometimes in your rankings, you want to make a point about a rider that really impressed you or as we discussed perhaps with the ones further down, you know, you leave someone out who you were really frustrated by. And I still truly believe that Quattararo is a total elite MotoGP rider um, and I I feel genuine sort of pain and suffering for him that he's being held back so much by his machinery. I'd like to go to Val next because you put him seventh, which is obviously a lot lower than third, but you were ahead of Simon's ranking quite considerably. So Val, you can make the middle ground case for Quattararo, which I'm I'm broadly with because you put him seventh, I put him sixth. Yeah, I'm, look, I'm, I agree with much of Glenn's argument. I still think, I think three is very charitable just because I don't think he sustained that level of uh, consistently extracting the most of what he had for whatever good that would have done. Maybe that would have been just an extra 30 or 40 points or whatever. But I mostly, I think it would have been qualifying. I think there were some qualifying sessions where he just kind of looked at sea when the bike didn't give him much, but he also didn't do as much with it as he could have for whatever that would have been worse. Again, maybe starting 10th or starting 14th for Yamaha this year, maybe it doesn't really matter that much. But if you were assessing his individual performance, I suspect there were cases where he's either wasn't in the right headspace or pushed too hard and ended up on the ground and missed out on a, on a decent starting grid position that he could do something with. Decent being relatively speaking, because of course, decent all the eight Ducatis. Yeah, all the eight Ducatis were always ahead anyway. But... You know what I mean. Uh, but I think, again, you, you put him on a better bike. He's an instant title contender immediately. He is still one of MotoGP's elite riders. I'm completely convinced of that. He is one of the most talented blokes on the grid, probably top two in that particular regard. It was a good season. He really pressed on it and started to chip away uh, at 
the issues of the start of the season in the late, latter half without really the bike, I suspect, getting much considerably better. I think he just figured figured out a situation and potentially accepted it, for better or for worse. I don't think he should completely accept it. I think he should be fielding calls from every single factory in the offseason. And if one of those factories offers anything even remotely decent, then he should tell Yamaha to forget about it and go sign with somebody else. But yeah, that's basically the reasoning. I think he could have been a lot better, but also I compare him to Mark Marquez's point, you know, the two flag bearers for the two Japanese manufacturers. The Honda was a lot crashier, obviously. Like there's a matter of making a point, but there's also a matter of it's just easier to crash a Honda. You don't have to do too much to do it. And that was even the case when they both both bikes were good, wasn't it? Yes, true. Yeah, yeah. But but especially particularly this year, obviously. But yes, always when the bikes were good. Fabio Cartaro used to barely crash. This season was actually a bit, I think, high by his standards. I look at it right now. His crash totals for the... Well, now it's in line with the average, so I'm talking crap. Mm. Well, it felt high sometimes. <laughs> and... Yeah, I think just because he was more efficient, considerably more efficient than Mark, I put him quite high, but I there's only so much he could have done, and I feel he wasn't thoroughly, like completely consistent over the season, but I felt he was very good. And I think he's going to be top three in this ranking next year somehow. Before Simon gets his chance to fire both barrels at, at quarter hour, if, if he wishes, I ended up elevating him to sixth a little bit retrospectively in, in mind before I settled on it because I was guilty of almost not noticing him too often this season. Once you got in the habit of expecting Yamaha to not be very good anymore and got over thinking that was appalling because it was so recent, it was he was fighting for a title with it. I kind of zoned out to Quattararo in a way. He wasn't making the noise Marquez was in terms of crashes or future speculation or anything like that. He was having enough rants, but they just felt like a bit of more of the same every weekend. And there were definitely post-race podcasts where we'd be chatting about Quattararo's latest outburst. And I'd make some disparaging reference to how rubbish he'd been on track around that. And you two would kind of point out he had actually finished fifth Matt, on a Yamaha. I'd be like, oh, wow, I didn't even notice that because he was in that part of the field you didn't see too often. And he'd just kind of quietly tiger his way through to something a bit, a bit decent sometimes. So when I actually looked at his results in more detail, I thought, actually, if the Yamaha was as underwhelming and had as many disadvantages as I now think it probably did have, he, he did pretty well against the odds there. And like you both said, yeah, he had some rants, but on track, he pretty much got on with it and did, did the best that was possible with that bike. Simon, you can now disagree with all of us. I, I disagree with you specifically, Matt. Oh, Sorry. Good. Um, <laughs> We're I, safe, I don't know. I don't know if he did give it is all because I think whenever you're being so disparaging and sounded so checked out off the bike, I, I can't believe that you're giving your full commitment on the bike. And I just wonder if there was more to take from this season uh, that he didn't manage to take because he thought that he wasn't going to do anything. So he just wasn't mentally all there. Um, yeah. I, I, he spent a lot of time moaning very strongly about a bike that then on occasion surprised everyone by being a little bit better than everyone thought uh, with a few of those good results. And I just wonder if, if he'd done less time moaning and more time trying to ride faster, would he have been better than 10th in the championship? I'm not, I'm not against that argument. Uh, amusingly, uh, we, we have recorded some of these podcasts slightly out of sequence. So you'll hear a podcast 
the week after this one, which I make a kind of opposite case about Cotteraro, which we recorded just before this one. So a, a time travel is playing out here around you, my opinions of Cotteraro. You were predicting that you're going to change your mind. Yeah, I think I could be convinced. Um, <laughs> I, I have a rant on another podcast at some point about his moaning and how that must have affected his form. But I wonder whether it's in terms of actually not trying or in terms of just the sort of mental state he was in the the crashes he did have you're right Val statistically it wasn't a huge number but it felt conspicuous for him and I wondered if this was mistakes creeping in because he was just in this constant state of fury that did come out in his media debriefs I, I, I still I still feel the same about him even with taking into account that he probably wasn't in the right headspace for getting great results what he did in that headspace was still was still impressive as far as I was concerned So we're down to our final four. And uh, interestingly, I've worked with Glenn for a long time. He has a historic dislike of top tens that also include people out of the top 10 and kind of a also rans, runners and riders thing. But in this Do case, I? Re- yeah, you, you, if you see this appear in a written top 10, you moan about it and you're right to. But in this case, some of us were so ludicrously different from each other, it's worth us having a brief argument about. So you you're know, about to out me as a hypocrite. then. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, you've probably guessed the four riders who are left who are going to be our top four, but you may be wondering, has Val got Fermin Aldegar in there somehow, despite the fact he's not in MotoGP yet? <laughs> of course uh, he has. Who are we, who are we waiting to, to see appear? So the, the rider with the highest individual score who does not get a top 10 place overall is Mark Marquez, who I put fifth, and the rest of you just dismissed as not top 10 worthy <laughs> this year. So I will go first quickly on Mark Marquez. Okay, the results were mostly terrible or deliberately destructive, and he was missing for parts of the season in all sorts of ways. But there's gonna have to be a big but here, yeah. isn't there? But the speed he got out of that bike, which was clearly rubbish on the times before he crashed or managed an inevitable slide down the field, the spirit he showed before crashing into somebody, I'm here for that. That makes me want to watch sports. I still, I the high points were brilliant. He gets, he kind of gets up my top ten for just making the season a whole storyline for his control of the rider market. I'm, I'm just throwing in pure, pure Marquez vibes. Got him up to fifth. You're ranking him on news value. That's what you're doing here. This isn't about what he did in the bike. You're a website editor going, ah, oh, Mark Marquez was was news traffic gold. That's, that's a completely different ranking. I don't care. Before I know, <laughs> before Simon comes in, so I know he's he's ready. I can see he's ready to tear you apart as well i just say riding a bike at 120 percent to make a point is amusing for a while but it doesn't get you in a top 10 eventually because it's counterproductive yeah i mean i, I love the fact that uh glenn and i had the exact same facial expressions at like various <laughs> points during matt's uh, little defense of his of his stance there um I, I he's not in my top 10 for the same reason that quadraro was 10th Maybe if he concentrated on doing his job a little bit more rather than trying to prove a point or being distracted by the fact that he liked moaning about things, even though Mark doesn't moan, he just crashes. Um, he might have been a bit, maybe not a bit higher, but a bit less broken throughout the season. Um, he spent a lot of time launching himself into people. And the, you know, the other reality is that he probably should have won a race this year. Because if Alex Rins could win on at Coda on the current Honda, so could Mark Marquez. But the reason that Mark Marquez wasn't in Coda to win was because he T-boned Miguel Oliveira out of a race and broken him. Um, yeah, I think a little bit less trying to be 
a Larry one lap wonder who could, you know, deliver a performance now and then and a little bit more time working and actually making the Honda better by, I don't know, seeing the end of a race with it um, <laughs> would have improved things for everyone. We, we mark Zarco down despite finishing fifth in the championship. I mark Mark Marquez up despite finishing 14th in the championship. Are you talking to me like I'm a lunatic? Yep. <laughs> for what it's worth, I mean, it, it did enter my mind for a bit, but when I looked at he scored fewer than 100 points, that was one like i can't really justify it uh but also yes he was the best honda rider by a considerable margin most times he was on track i mean that's that's the marquez thing and we shouldn't yes glenn but i I wonder if i might get to it but yes uh before before glenn gets to his his point that he's about to make i think if we got a full season of alex rins like a full normal season of a fit alex rins i think mark might not have looked as good relative to the other Hondas. I think the instant impact that Alex Rins made, honestly, I I, brought, I genuinely gave more thought putting Alex Rins into the top 10 than I did Mark Marquez. And it, it wasn't happening. But I, I considered it because I, I thought he was really properly figuring things out. And I think it is a little bit criminal that Hondas managed to let him go before everything that happened happened. Final point on Mark. Oh, go on then. Uh, just on the, the points thing, the 96 points had the same effect on me because I kind of thought maybe he'd be in the battle for my 10th place. I saw that and I thought, actually, no, let's just check because he missed quite a few races. Maybe his average weekend score was okay. It wasn't. It was rubbish. Yeah, there were other people (laughs) that I had no interest in putting in my top 10 who had a better weekend average for however many races they did. So, yeah, just nowhere near it for me. Because uh, he got a very strong mention there, I'm going to quickly throw Alex Rins in because two of us did put him in the top 10. I think I can summarise our Rins arguments here, though. Me and Glenn put him ninth, 10th, forget which way around we were, but we, we put him lower each of the top 10. Simon and Val, you didn't put him in. My guess here is you two went, he just wasn't actually on the grid for most of the season. He can't be in the top yeah. 10. Me and Glenn went, but he won a race on a Honda. And- That's my entire argument. I was going to say, we can do this really quickly. He won a race on a Honda. He's, he, you deserve recognition for that, even if you didn't do the rest of the season. Precisely. Let's move on. Uh, he he so, did actually, just really quickly go right. through it there, he did actually win 25% of the races he finished this year, which is... Incredible record. Yeah. Should have been higher. Absolutely. Great stat. <laughs> Great stat. Val likes stats. Why wasn't he third? Uh, so you all thought I was ludicrous for elevating Mark Marquez from 14th in the Riders' Championship to 5th in my standings. Simon has elevated Augusto Fernandez from 17th in the Riders' standings to, was it 6th in your top 10, I think? It, yep. Yep, 6th. How That is surely crazier than anything I came up with today. He's, he's, he's a rookie on the 4, 12, on like the th- for 15th best bike in the grid who finished fourth in in a race he had a great season um he absolutely smashed i think uh rookie expectations he went like over half a season um before he managed to finish a race outside the points he had a a load of top 10 finishes for me as a, as a rookie season he massively exceeded expectations Looked really strong, really impressed me, um, and I'm quite excited to see what he can do in the future on a, a better KTM. You know, he he was on the worst KTM at the end of the season because he didn't have the new frame and everything, and he was sort of semi-consistently beating Jack Miller. Um, that That is not good for Jack Miller and really, really good for Augusto Fernandez and his future. Yeah. To me, that sounds like a great case of putting him 10th-ish. 
a little guessing game to end this section. Uh, Glenn picked a rider who didn't turn up very much. Another one for 10th. Anyone care to guess, you two, who that was? Lorenzo Salvadori. Stefan Bradl. <laughs> Almost. Danny Pedrosa made uh, Glenn's top 10 on the basis of, was it two, three Grand Prix weekends? Two. Two. Yeah, two where he scored really well was a factor at the front the whole time. I know the bike's good, but, you know, if it's not that often that you see wild cards turn up and do I was impressed enough with what he did at Jerez. And then he, I think he did miles better than that at Mizano. I know, Yeah. I think it was is it during the Mizano race, we were all kind of joking amongst ourselves. I think I even joined in on your chat being like, oh, if his race craft was a bit better, he could probably win this. <laughs> um, but when he's turned up as a wild card, I will no longer use that as the stick to beat him with as I might have when he was on a, a, a pretty decent Repsol Honda. Yeah, I just, again, another rider. I just felt he deserved recognition. And there were enough other riders who didn't impress me enough despite being around for most of the season that yeah I, I genuinely possibly the most impressed I've been by Pedrosa since he was in 250s if I if I included Rins which I did you know give thought to a bit but if I included Rins then I also include Danny Pedrosa and he's P5 or something like maybe higher <laughs> well, honestly maybe like name any number and I can I can justify it in my head <laughs> Those two weekends relative to the situation and the expectations were incredible. Unbelievable. I Just stunning, shocking. And I've seen Danny Pedrosa full-time in MotoGP, but I've seen his sort of, I, I don't want to say sad years, but I've seen his decline at Honda. And these two weekends have made me rethink basically everything I thought about Danny Pedrosa. And... The only the only caveat to that is I've also seen Mika Calio do really well in a KTM wildcard. So I actually don't know what's going on there. Nobody knows. But yeah. He finished ahead of Joanne Mir in the championship. Well, yeah. Well, that's the less said about I was going to say, I think we all did as well. First <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> one. Uh, if I, I'd like to add to this, if only any of Bastianini, they turned up once all season and that had been Malaysia, I feel like he would have figured in the top 10 rather than getting zero votes. He's yeah, been in my top zero three. votes from anybody. Uh, the moral of the story there is do it more than once. Troy Bayless, P1. Yeah, indeed. Uh, last part of the guessing game. So this is about the big impact Val sudden leap of faith this morning and Luca Marini had. Who do you think that came at the expense of? Who did it boot out of Val's top 10? Any guesses, Simon and Glenn? Who, who might Val have had a bit of faith in? Firmin Aldegar. <laughs> almost, almost. <laughs> Jack Miller lost his place in Val's top no. 10. No, I was just about to say, it can't be Jack Miller. I can see the logic. If you just measure like, how he started out. It's only because you understand Val's brain. No one understands Val's brain. Val has not got a clue about Val's now. brain. No, exactly. But I could, I could see a slight point of early in the season, I was like, look at Jack Miller making a manufacturer switch actually work. Okay, let's not mention the following two thirds of the season. But, you know, small sample set. There was, a, there was a case there. Was that kind of where you were thinking, Val, when you, before you changed your mind, I thought Mourinho was much better? Yes. Uh, it's, again, we, we, we've mentioned the, the phrase recency bias, bias here. Uh, Miller finished 11th, which isn't fantastic. He finished 130 points behind Brad Binder, which isn't fantastic. But Brad Binder knows that bike, and it's a bike that's con- traditionally not been very friendly to other riders hopping onto it. I mean, Jack Miller is comfortably the, the most successful a rider has been switching to KTM from another bike since, I mean, Paul Espargo, I guess, and the KTM wasn't really a formed thing at that point. 
He was really, really good out of the blocks. He was very impressive over one lap on a bike where there were, I think, very significant doubts over how good it actually was over one lap. All of that faded a bit during the season, very much. Um, I think he's just probably just good at Valencia and the KTM's probably just good at Valencia. So that helped him almost win a race, but extremely not win a race in the end. But I think like part of it, I think part of the reason for excluding him, and I did exclude him, so actually I shouldn't be saying it that way. But part of the reason for not even considering him is recency bias. I think that's one. And two is just everybody's tired of Jack Miller's particular set of skills, which is qualifying decently, somehow popping up in the top three in the early going because he's done a great start <laughs> and he's running there. And then either running out of tires immediately or crashing out. I think he's better than that. I think he's actually suddenly surprisingly underrated. He may be wears too much of a chip on the shoulder about that because he always talks about you know proving people wrong and how people said that he'd be out of a job after 12 months. He had genuinely there. I think there was no argument for dropping him at the end of the season. None. I think that's that would have been insane to contemplate. But I think he's in a lot of trouble for 25. I think. Um, but also, I I can't really justify putting him below Augusto Fernandez like that. I don't really understand as much as i love augusto and like this season i don't see it at all anyone care to guess uh, so miller wouldn't have made the top 10 regardless because only val voted for him but anyone care to guess who lost out of a place in our overall top 10 as a result of val thrusting marini upwards because it knocked someone out of our our conversation completely alex marquez yes correct yeah which I don't feel was unfair. There were times during this season when I was like, I think this is the best we've seen of Alex Marquez in MotoGP since you know, since his junior class title wins. But the, for me, this wasn't enough of it. And he did some very Alex Marquez things through the course of the season as well. I think he's... So. he's well, he won a sprint and I think he, he makes it comfortably if you win Sepang because I think he was the best rider at Sepang. But he didn't. I still... I did put him into my top 10. He was 10th, I think, on my end. So... Yeah, you you and Simon both put him in. Yeah, I think he was. He's I don't think he was. In mine. He was at Finmay. Yeah, yeah. I, he didn't disappoint me. I think he was quite unlucky at, at a lot of a lot of occasions, and I think he adapted well to the Ducati. But you know, it's just you have to do a lot to impress on a 2023 Ducati consistently, given how good that bike was. Just didn't quite do enough results. To, for me to feel very comfortable about putting him higher, but I, I was reasonably impressed. I think I think he's a good rider. I think all of these people are good riders. Let's just let's just everyone's and everyone just say first. everybody's a good rider. And yeah, well, just score yeah. everyone first. <laughs> now that's the thing I don't like about top tens is you know, I had colleagues in the past. Uh, there's two things I hate. One is equal number one. You don't have that. Which just means you bottled it. And the other one is wanting an extensive. Um, people that missed out thing. Now we've done it here in a sort of funny way of, oh, look, that person got a point from you and what the hell were you doing picking that person? But we didn't just go, here are the other 17 riders who <laughs> raced this season and why we think they're all wonderful. This is why I thought you wouldn't hate this approach, basically. That is that is the... Until Val ruined it. <laughs> yeah. Let's get on to some people who are in our top 10. Let's get on to the top four. Uh, so I count down. Uh, Antonio 10th, Vignales 9th, Marini 8th, uh, Alicia Spargo 7th, Zarco 6th, Quattararo 5th, very close for thirds, just one point in it. But Marco Bezzecchi ends up fourth on the wrong side of that point. 
Uh, Val, Glenn and me all put him fourth in our ranking, but Simon put him third. So Simon gets to go first. And we are in the, in the, in the territory in this ranking where it's going to be more positive than negative. But Simon, you, you, ha- you were the most positive about Bez. Um, Bez did what we maybe didn't expect, but hoped that he would do this year and delivered one of those seasons where, um, you know, you take a year old Ducati and make it really competitive and win races and generally look quite impressive and put together a surprise title challenge that eventually finishes third, a la Enea Bastianini in 2022. Um, yeah, I, I... I think he needed, he was under quite a bit of pressure this year to step up his game. He did step it up. Um, he was consistent and looked good all season. Um, he got a bit unlucky. And I think more than anything else, his bad luck is is what derailed what would have been a better end of the season if his teammate hadn't T-boned him uh, out of the race in, in India. And if he hadn't... Um, damaged his shoulder training at the ranch in circumstances that I still maintain are fishy because no one will tell us what happened and I'm really curious about that there's something going on there but yeah all in all not terrible um his his performance in the sprint race in India showed to me how how good he is whenever he got basically knocked to last by Marini and was able to come back through and, and very nearly get onto the podium um that that for me was like performance quite indicative of his his tenacity and his speed through the year matt did you say he missed out on third in our ranking by a point by one point yeah oh, i feel quite bad about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think this is your fault isn't it Try, trying to uh yeah not match the me championship trying to standings. make a point over quattararo yeah. <laughs> as, as cost bears there i did say earlier i did say earlier that i'd probably done him the dirty so yeah i i can only apologize um yeah, he had a, he had a really good season, um, and yeah, I I hope I hope there's another one. I hope there's many more to come. I I, I thought I thought he was superb when fully fit, um, which is a point I'll come back to on someone else later. Uh, so yeah, I I I, I will uh, tuck my tail between my legs and hang my head slightly in shame at being responsible for that because I feel bad for him. There was a there was a stretch of like a big stretch of the season I think just before the I guess the final even including some of the final flyaways, where Marco Bezzecchi was not going to be P4 in my rankings, he's going to be P1. Um, regardless of who won the title, regardless of how it played that, but I think he's just... The problem and what what ended up with me ranking him P4 is the last year's Spectacati was suddenly so good in so many people's hands from weekend to weekend that it sort of took the shine off a little bit. Bisecki obviously wasn't fully fit, but he also sometimes just wasn't able to live with some of those other year-old Ducatis, which is, again, I was holding him to a very, very high standard because I genuinely considered him as P1. And, you know, I've watched a few of his onboard races during the season for various pieces of content, and some of the rides he put on were scarcely believable. Like, there were parts of the season where he looked like he was riding a different class to everybody else. Which maybe does merit a higher place in the in the rankings. I feel I feel pretty bad about the P4. There was, you know, early in the season, I think I made some readers probably of a particular passport quite annoyed by writing about the Argentina Terma sprint that somebody else won and writing, yeah, that win was great, but this was Marco Bezzecchi's race, he should have won it. He was so much quicker than everybody else. India sprint was the same, and it was proven in the India main race. There were parts of the season where he was riding a different class to everybody else, and he was 
phenomenal and incredible. And sometimes he'd take a knock and just shrug it off completely and go absolutely shred through the field, keep his composure. He is so much more talented and so much better than I thought he would be when I saw him in junior classes. And he was already quite good in the junior classes. Good job, Marco. Sorry for the P4. Uh, I don't think he minds. His future's fine. He'll be fine. I mean, I, I think I, I can make a, a very strong guess as to who's going to finish third in this um, without having seen it yet. But um, and, and while I understand that the game third is probably on a bike that wasn't Ducati level, the thing for me that boosts Bezeki as well is that there was genuinely considerable parts of the season where he was the best Ducati rider. Um, and that that's the metric that you have to measure Ducati riders at. You know, the, the, the Ducati is the best bike in the grid. So you have to be the best of the best to, to warrant a good result, a good position. And he was. He was far better than Jorge Martin and Peko Bagnaya on multiple occasions this season. Yeah, I think my decision on who to put third versus fourth ended up as close as the overall points were here. It's very, very tough. Um, I'll explain my reasoning for my third place choice when we get to it. But... Bears had a phenomenal season, didn't he? And I think I think he he maintained this form for so long that we stopped at times noticing how well he was doing. Perhaps not us, but I think generally, yeah. We often in the podcast we'd often debate the fact that he still wasn't really a title contender. You know, he wasn't going to be champion. He was on a year old bike. This would fade, and yet until he got injured, there he still was in his second year, having had a, a decent first year. But you know, he didn't win a he didn't win a world title in the junior ranks, even though he looked good for a lot of the time, very good for a lot of that time. He's not been a world champion yet. His first season was, you know, pretty good, but he was very quite mediocre in the championship standings at the end. What a step up. What a massively impressive step up. This guy looks like the next Italian world champion. Um, and I'm a little bit disappointed he decided to stick with the sort of familiar VR46-year-old bike comfort rather than pushing himself onto the next level when he had the chance of a Pramac seat and going against Martin and having the, the new spec bike yeah, because I, I want to see him have the best possible shot at a title and see what he's really, really, really made of because I, I think he is that special. So on to the man who did pip bears in our rankings. Brad Binder breaks up the Ducatis and goes third in our championship. That is despite Glenn in a desperate bid to get bears back up again, only putting Brad Binder fifth in his points. Me and Val both put him third. Simon put him fourth. I'm going to go first before Val. I often accuse Val of being a Brad Binder super fan, uh, rightly or wrongly. So I'll let, I'll let Val chime in after I've made my pitch for Brent Binder being third. I think I just got seduced by the real high points. Just a, se- a series of like highlight clips in my mind of him pulling off amazing bits of racecraft. I know he let some things slip. I know he needs to just mind that track limits line on the last lap a lot better. I don't know. I don't think I often vote for successful ex- execution when it comes to these rankings, and I kind of don't care. But he was, if you wanted to, if you were looking at a results sheet and it was covered in Ducatis, the person who was among those Ducatis more often than not would be Brad Binder. An absolute fair play to that. Uh, I know he didn't get a Grand Prix win done. He probably should have done, but just massive points up my ranking for being the person who got among the Ducatis again and again and again and did it with amazing elbows out racecraft and produced some of the drives that the drives cracky rides of the season as a result Val am I right yes yes you are um which yeah it's it's funny that it's come to this because we just run a column about Binder's season for me that I think was actually quite quite harsh yes <laughs> or at least you know quite a but like a reasonably harsh assessment but that's again the the standard to which the guy is is being held to 
I'm not, again, I'm not a Brendan or a super fan. I put Miguel Oliveira over him in the top 10 a couple of years ago. And oh, yes. maybe I'm still making up for that yeah. in a way. Yeah. But maybe I'm just... <sighs> Look, he's better than the bike is right now. That's that's what, what I truly, genuinely feel. And I think it's a good bike, but I think Brad Binder on the Ducati is a very comfortable title contender because he, he brings home the points. He gives you the points. And I know... That the impression from the season is, you know, he's he's made more errors this season than usually, certainly, um, including the Valencia finale one where a, a, a one race stopped being won suddenly. That was a bad one. There were a few crashes that shouldn't have happened. You've brought up the track limits thing. Honestly, I don't care about that at all. Like that hasn't even entered my mind. I don't think that matters. It's It's a handful of points. It's over the full season. Don't care about it. What I do care about is over and over and over again, he was the best KTM rider. When he's being beaten over one lap, he makes up for it in the race. And sometimes he's not being beaten over one lap. Uh, I wondered if, you know, Paul Espargaro could maybe be closer to him than all the other ones, but we never really got to see what Paul Espargaro could do. But honestly, I suspect even a fit Paul Espargaro, Brad Binder had covered pretty, pretty comfortably. And Jack Miller, he had covered very comfortably. The only knock against him is that Danny Pedrosa showed up for a couple of weekends and did some ridiculous stuff. And that's, for me, that's the main argument to put him fourth over third, but it what didn't quite weigh enough for me. Great season, great rider. I can see why KTM has extended him to 2059 or whatever. I would have done the same. So Glenn, I'm going to let Glenn go first, Simon, because Glenn is the, the anti-Binder voice and you can try and pull it back again. Glenn, why is he only fifth for you? Yeah, not because I'm anti-Binder. Uh, I think, yeah, he's done a great job and I totally agree with Val about um, KTM being willing to build this this team and their project around him for now. Um, I obviously had the Quattararo factor that, that spoiled <laughs> Bez's party. I did feel that Bezeki had to be above Binder and I am holding it against Brad that he didn't win a race this year. You know, there were, he was It was great that he was so consistently right up there but I think at some point when you're so consistently right up there, you have to be the guy who gets the job done and who 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 picks up a win. And there were lots of guys, as we mentioned earlier, who had weekends on various bikes where they were the guy that weekend. And I just felt that Brad either never quite had that or never quite converted an opportunity where he might have he might have been able to do that. So yeah, that not winning a race is a, a minor blemish on what was an otherwise a very good season. I I agree um that that's the reason why i didn't even consider putting him higher than fourth higher than his championship position not winning a race in a year where there was opportunities to win a race and and he literally threw them away on occasion and also i i know that you said val the track limits thing isn't that big a deal to you but it costs podiums and and that's more than points um, the opportunity to stand on the top of the box and spray champagne and get a trophy and go back to the garage and be all happy and smiley as opposed to just rolling into it after the race is worth something. Um, and to do it over and over again shows that being denied the podium by doing it the first time didn't really teach him anything. And, and I was a bit surprised. It's careless, I isn't guess. it? It is. Yeah, it, it, it kind of adds to a picture of a year that could have been more um you know especially with especially with valencia and and that crash um the win should have been there there should have been a few more podiums because yeah he's fourth in the championship but whenever you look at his record um 
if if you didn't if you you looked at his results without necessarily seeing that he was fourth, you would think it was a bit of an okay season, but not a great one because you know, it, it feels like there's things missing from it. It feels like there's a uh, you know a couple of big glaring holes. I mean, the win thing is that's a tough one for me to assess because I think really has to be taken into the account of the amount of opportunities offered, which were there, but I don't think were so plentiful. Individual podiums no longer move the needle for me for KTM. I think they don't matter at this point. This is not The project is not in a place where individual podiums are something to massively celebrate or care about. You're, you're either but winning... But they need to win some races. Yes, you're either winning consistently, and the bike isn't there. So I do not hold that against Brad Bender right now. Um, yeah, I think until until the bike is where it needs to be, for me, this is good enough for 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 a P three spot. I know I, I'm I'm not trying to be too categorical about it. I'm just this is this is how I see it. Like as when the bike isn't there for the for the championship, this for me is is plenty enough. And I see I see Glenn's point about it. they can build it around him for now. Obviously, if Mark Marquez is on the market, then you take a long hard look at that. If Fabio Quartararo is on the market, you take a long hard look at that. But for now, this is this is the guy who's showing you where the bike is, and the bike needs a bit more. It's a good bike. It needs a bit more. You'll not be surprised, listeners, that our top two are way ahead of the rest in the points in the end. There was not universal agreement about the number one, but it was not far off. Uh, Jorge Martin is second in our championship as well. I put him first. You three didn't. I'm going to make my case for Martin being first very quickly. A teeny, teeny percentage is I actually think that record of nine sprint wins out of 19 is a very dominant percentage in one element that was new for this year and turned out quite important. That's not a big part of my argument. My biggest argument is just he did it on a satellite bike. He took the title fight to that close on a satellite bike. The thing Simon tells us every year is completely impossible and fair enough has not been done in a long, long, long time. That it, it, where our two championship rivals were quite, were very different and their respective strengths were quite hard and weaknesses were quite hard to wear up against each other because they were so contrasting a lot of the time. Satellite bike. Amazing. There's my entire Martin argument. Why do you three hate him? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he would have done anything any differently on a factory bike. <laughs> I agree. And I think that's why I think he would have still have been super fast quite inconsistent a bit unpredictable and we would have still have got to the final round of the season with him in contention for the championship even if he was smashed into someone and thrown it down the road um yeah i i don't think satellite bike changed anything for him this year um i just think he's just not quite the complete package um he's just not not everything is there yet for him to be a title contender um for me Yes, he crashed out of the lead in in Indonesia and threw away 25 sure points. But the biggest mistake of the season was uh, Australia, was starting a race in a tyre when everybody told him not to do it and no one else did it because he thought he knew better. That, to me, shows that there's still maturing to be done in Jorge Martin before he's a a, a deserving title winner. Yeah, um, I had to mark him down for... As you, uh, two wins that were thrown away there. I get that the track conditions in Indonesia were horrendous, but the race was in his pocket by that point. Um, Matt, you said about the it's a satellite bike. I think it's the best satellite bike we've ever seen. 
in Grand Prix racing. Yeah, fair. Uh, it's as close to a factory bike as you're ever going to see. Yeah. Uh, and yes, he came really close on a satellite bike, but I actually think he should have won the championship on a satellite bike. So I, I couldn't put him number one because he finally, he finally should have shut Simon up and proven that it can be done. <laughs> and he didn't. So Simon can still bang his drum for at least another 10 months, probably. Yeah. Um, until Mark Marquez does it. Yeah, that's But true. that doesn't count. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, th- th- there's something about Banyar as well that I'll wait for when we do uh, Peko next. I assume Peko's number one. Wow. Um, Spoilers. Yeah. It's not Eldega. And, uh, but yeah, they're just unfortunately the, the, the black marks against Martin's season are so big that his championship defeat, I feel, was self-inflicted. It, it was it was doable for me, even if he loses the title, it was doable for me to see him P1 in the rankings. But every time I think about it, I see Australia. Uh, okay. That's the one race, not the crashes. You can crash as a rider. Yeah. It happens. It happened to Peko Banyai plenty of times out of the lead. It happened to him this year. He's also chucked wins into the trash. But to do that to yourself, with your crew, but to yourself, before the race had even started is i don't know i did i it doesn't like disqualify from p1 it was needless it was needless it wasn't like he needed to gamble yeah i think about it every time i and i in that exact podcast episode i remember outlining the logic but it's it's i think about it every time and it's it's what made the championship fight less close than it should have been and He's had a wonderful season. He's very fast. He'll have no shortage of suitors for 2025. He could very well win the championship next year. But just not not quite. Not quite. I will say that he still had a great season. And obviously, I've, I've focused on his negatives there because I'm justifying why he wasn't number one. I had a lot more doubts about him before this year. And I just thought he was going to be a perennial fast guy who qualifies on the front row and then crashes out of the lead. That felt like that was what he was developing into. He did put together a phenomenal season. He used the sprints to his advantage because they they suited him. But it was a great step up of a season and and it should be a stepping stone, as Val said there, to now a proper career as a top line MotoGP racer, not just a fast guy who crashes. And to be fair, I think winning like 1,500 sprints on the on the trot is incredible. Yeah. It's fantastic because it's not an easy format to, to conquer like that. I know it plays to strength, but it's it's quite something special because those races are real proper dog fights. They're unforgiving. And you, they are, yeah, they don't leave you much room for error. But he, even when he did make errors in those, he always had the sheer animal brutal pace to make up for it. He was so fast this season, Jorge Martin. So fast, so good. The, the irony is probably that the reason that he was so strong in the sprints is the reason that he wasn't as strong on Sundays. It, it That style, that aggressiveness still needs some taming for me. It still needs to be calmed down and to be matured. And we saw a little bit of him trying to do that, I think. We saw races later in the season where he, he looked like he was trying to kind of manage the race from the front and do what Peko Bagnaya is still so good at. Um, but he's not as good as Bagnai is right now at doing it. And if that comes, he is absolutely he's a, a title contender again next season and maybe, you know, even much stronger of a one, even though there's a Mark Marquez-shaped wildcard being fired into that. So Paco Bagnai is our number one, and I will go first in my case for him not being number one, so you can all throw stones at me afterwards. 
And as much admiration as I've got for how fast that guy is, how he can control the race, how he has matured into the most complete rider on the grid in an era that I think is really pretty damn good, I think he made slightly too heavy weather of a situation in which he was the reigning champion for the factory team with the dominant bike in a season where many of his rivals were injured by the time round one was over and yet you get a quarter of the way into the season round five he's only one point ahead in the championship how has he done that later in the season martin's coming back at him if martin hadn't made the mistakes he had made i don't know if i could see banyard coming back at martin if martin's pulled out a 20 30 point lead i've got that doubt that said I've got no objection to him being world champion. I've actually been quite sad for him if he hadn't been. I've got no objection to you three putting him number one. So you can all tell me exactly why I'm wrong now. But it, it, it stinks and it's boring to to pick the champion as P1. So that also is, <laughs> <laughs> that also is unfortunate. But no, you're completely right. He made I think he made too many mistakes. And I think if, if it was ever a situation like last year, this year, if it was a situation where the, his title rival wasn't on a Ducati... I think I I wouldn't even consider him for P1, really, even if he won the title. I think with it being Jorge Martin, who we we knew before the season is blisteringly fast, and I think going off the preseason, we entirely expect it to be very, very good and sometimes have Banyai beaten on the on the peaks of performance. I think Banyai was better at the stuff that pays more points, which doesn't mean he's doesn't mean he's better or more talented. Doesn't mean he's worse or less talented, whatever. He's just better at the stuff that's more valued. He was better at putting his weekend together. He was better at digging himself out of holes. He was better at planning out a Sunday race and executing it to perfection and making people incredibly frustrated when they sat behind him and just could not find a way past, even if even if his space wasn't there. He, as we so often say, he combines the raw speed of a Jorge Lorenzo with uh, the smarts and strategery of an Andrea De Vicioso to give you the perfect Ducati rider hybrid to win races and to win championships. Doesn't mean he'll have it easy next year by any stretch of the imagination. Doesn't mean he's as talented as Jorge Lorenzo, not what I'm trying to say necessarily. But it means he is, as Simon always likes to say, and I think yes, he is correct in saying, he is a well-rounded package. He still does just randomly chuck it down the road on Sundays. That's one thing that, keeps happening. I would not be surprised if it returned in some capacity in 2024. I think the suggestion that he's eradicated that I don't agree with. I don't think that's quite past the test of time yet, but in every other aspect of his game he's very good. Too great. I don't think he's not the best champion we've ever seen and this wasn't the best championship win we've ever seen, but he was nonetheless the champion this year against guys who were on bikes that were equal to his um, and he beat them. And, you know, he, he said, he he said to me uh, in an interview at the start of the season that he doesn't consider himself a a great of the sport yet. And I don't think that a second championship won the way that he won it this year will, will tip the scale on that particularly. If he beats Mark Marquez next season, while Mark Marquez is on his bike from this year, um, then we can start talking about Bagnaya in, in different terms. Um, but right now, he isn't at that level, but that doesn't take anything away from what he did this season and the fact that he was, you know, he was the best of the field. Um, he, he does do stupid things. He needs to stop doing them as often, but he did stop doing them as often this year, which is progress. And yeah, it it, it kind of feels like he's 
slowly maturing, but he's doing it faster than the guys that he's racing against. And he's done it at a time now where he can go into next season, you know, confident, even against a Marquez, who's going to be better. Um, but yeah, it, you know, it, it takes nothing away from the fact that he was, for me, far and above the best, the best racer this season, even if he wasn't the fastest racer, which is the analogy that I've kept using. Jorge Martin is faster, but Bagnaia is better. Yeah, there's more to it, isn't it? You, you've got to have the whole package. I, I, I've, I've had a suspicion all. I know he didn't make a massive deal of it, but I have a suspicion that the Catalonia crash had more of a sort of long-lasting effect in the races that followed, and that was yeah. very badly timed because it was just as Martin was really hitting his stride. Obviously, if you don't want that to happen to you, don't throw yourself in the air in front of the field in the second corner of the race when you're in the lead. Um, but once I feel like there was maybe a turning point where once he was over any ill effects from that crash, he just, at the right time, he became relentlessly consistent and high scoringly consistent. So over the final seven weekends of the year, I, I was doing this live maths while you guys were talking. He averaged 25 points a weekend. Martin, Average 21 a weekend. So when it mattered, it was Banyaya who got it together and kept it together. And it was Martin who suddenly started either being incredible or throwing points away. And we've talked a lot about recency bias on this podcast. I think in a championship fight, what you do in what some sports would term the run-in is really important. And Banyaya didn't miss many beats. Regarding the, the Barcelona thing you said, I just remember reading recently i don't remember the exact outlet but one of the italian media places interviewed one of the cali higher-ups who said that banya's leg was still bleeding a month after that basically when he showed up at the track and you know like we all saw that crash we saw we thought it was a season ender so i i can imagine the the toll it will have taken on him mentally especially as he processed it all in his mind as he was flying and then being hit it was it was quite a lot to overcome, and you know if it didn't happen, if he just you know he did crash out, but you can't really I don't think you can fault him for crashing out into the path of other bikes. Like at that point, luck comes in. The crash, yeah, yeah, yeah that's your fault. The crash into other into the path of other bikes. I'm not saying that's what you did, Glenn. I'm just you know trying to yeah value it all up. Um, I, mean, I guess the the question in my head now is, and this is this is slightly sidetracking it, but is he a MotoGP Hall of Famer now? If he retires tomorrow, no. does he get in? No, not quite. Not. Even if Andrea Dovizioso is in? Well, that's not the point. That's not the point, is it? Okay, fair enough. Yeah, Dovi shouldn't be in. Bless him, okay. but no. Yeah, um, the MotoGP Hall of yeah. Fame is a completely devalued thing. I, yeah, just to I agree on the, the Barcelona crash element, I think I said in the Misano podcast that what uh, what Pecco did the week, one week after being hit at high speed like that to finish third in the San Marino Grand Prix, that was kind of the moment where I thought, even if he somehow blows the title from here, he deserves the title. That was very, very impressive. So our top 10 countdown for 2023, Fabio Di Antonio 10th, Maverick Vignales 9th, Luca Marini 8th, Alessia Spargro 7th, Johan Zarco 6th, Fabio Quartararo 4th, Marco Bezzecchi, hang on. Fabio Quartararo, fifth. Marco Bizecchi, fourth. Brad Binder, third. Jorge Martin, second. Pecco Bagnaia, best rider in the world, as declared by the points and the race MotoGP podcast. 
Thank you, listeners, for um, your company during this very long episode. We hope you enjoyed it. I think the extra arguing made it worthwhile. Val's going to quickly interject and deny something I've just said. He's going to talk about a rider market, isn't he? Uh, yeah. No, no. Can we just can we just go over every other rider in the meantime? No. Starting with uh, no. Let me see here. No. Who have we not mentioned uh, at all? Taka Nakagami. Let's quickly debate. No, no, no. Podcast I think over. Taka's the only rider that hasn't got a mention. <laughs> Quite eh? possibly. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Stefan Braddle podcast over 2023 season over thank you for your company all year thank you for the many arguments Simon and Val thank you for joining us to accentuate those arguments today Glenn we'll be back very early in the new year with a special episode in which we make a ton of Larry predictions about big picture 2024 stuff we may have recorded that one already using time travel we look forward to your company then and throughout 2024 have a great Christmas and new year period everyone The Athletic.